Let's welcome our Pastor Mike this morning. We're working through a series on uh, our knowledge of God or knowing God. And we come to one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. It's Isaiah's um, uh, experience or encounter with, uh, with the glory of God, with the holiness of God. So I'd like us to read this together. It's Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. It's in the front of your bulletin there. Let's read together as the church. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's commission from the Lord, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go. And say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears. And understand with their hearts and turn be healed. When we talk about who God is and and knowing God, the, the place that I started with you was the idea that there is a doctrine about God, God's simplicity, that uh, His attributes are His essence, and that His essence is His attributes. And that's not true of you and me. You and I, if we are judged by our attributes, it's a very mixed bag. You may say that you're a good person, but some of the attributes that you demonstrate would not demonstrate that you are a good person. There are people with whom you're very generous and very kind. And there are people with whom you're very patient. And other people you have no time for them whatsoever. Cruel and and hidden and and lying even. And, And when we look at ourselves, we have to realize we're not simple. We're complex. We're complicated. God is simple. His nature is His attributes. In other words, His His holiness is always loving. He's all-powerful and He is all-wise at the same time. There is nothing that He ever does that is not wise in its wisdom. He's everywhere present. But everywhere that He's present, His love is present. Because He is always who He is. He said it Himself, I am that I am. And I will be what I will be. And He's also saying, I was that I was. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, and as we begin to realize that as He manifests Himself 
He's always manifesting all of His attributes at the same time, but we can't handle them all at once. His glory is the fullness of who He is. And so, He gives us glimpses of His glory. And one of those glimpses is the experience and the encounter that Isaiah had with God. Just a little bit of His fullness is enough to undo us. We can't handle it. Others before Isaiah have also experienced the glory of God. And oftentimes when God reveals His glory, He reveals it through His name. And He gives the name as a revelation of His character, a revelation of His, of his essence. For example, Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice the son of the covenant, to sacrifice Isaac. And as he's going to make the sacrifice on the mountain, he, he is fully committed and his knife is about to come down and God stays his hand. And instead, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And in that moment, he reveals that he is Jehovah Jireh. That he is the God who provides. You see, in many ways, many of us in this room, we try to be our own Jehovah Jireh. We try to be our providers. And when you're complaining, you're basically saying to God, I could do a better job. But the truth is, as long as you want to be your own Jehovah Jireh, He will let you. It is only when you realize that He is Jehovah Jireh that He begins to release His provision into your life. You see, He will not resource your idolatry. And He will not make a success out of your idol. And so what He has to do is He has to show you through your lack of provision, through your need of provision, that He is Jehovah Jireh. You see, if you didn't need provision, then you wouldn't need a provider. And so He begins to work in your life in the times of lack. In the times of need. But you have to come to that place where you realize, you know, complaining never provides anything except more of the same. He, he revealed Himself to His people in the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever been to the Middle East, but when I go to the Middle East, I am, hung, I am thirsty all the time. Because I never see a river. You know, I never see a lake. I never see green grass. All I see is sand and I go... I'm thirsty. I'm so thirsty. I don't know how they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. It would just, if I didn't have like a bottle of water, I don't know what I would do when I'm there. And they come to a place they've been thirsty for a long time and they're out of water and they dip into this, this, this source of water and the water is bitter. The water is unhealthy and they bitterly begin to complain against God. And God reveals His name in the midst of their bitterness. And He says, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the God who heals you. And He takes what is bitter and He turns it into sweet. I want to ask you today, are there bitter things in your life right now? Are there things that have created a bitterness? The truth is, your marriage can be a place of bitterness. Your family can be a place of bitterness. Your job can be a place of bitterness. But here's the issue. Many of us turn our bitterness towards the only One who can heal our bitterness. Only He can take the bitter and make it sweet. And yet what we do is we are bitter with Him. And so He says, if you love your bitterness, you can keep your bitterness. I have seen people who define themselves by how much crisis they have in their life. Who define themselves by how sick they are. 
If you choose to be a victim, He will allow you to be a victim until finally you realize being a victim does not work for you. I have never seen anyone really turn and walk in the Spirit till they realize every other way does not work. Do you have bitterness in your life? Then the only one who is Jehovah Rapha is the God of the Bible. He is the only one who can take your natural bitterness and turn it into sweetness. He can drink the poison for you. Many of us have drunk poison of unforgiveness, bitterness, revenge, and thought it would kill the other person when drinking poison only kills you. When the Israelites faced an overwhelming force, when they faced overwhelming odds, God showed up in the midst of it and gave them this name, I am Jehovah Nisi. I am the standard. I am the standard over you. The battle is not yours. The battle belongs to me. And so Jehovah Nisi came to be known as God is our victory. Any of you facing overwhelming odds this morning? Any place where the stress is greater than your resources, where the needs and demands on you are greater than your natural resources, today is the day that he says, I am Jehovah Nisi. I am the standard that is raised up over you. And my banner over you is love. And I am the God who is victorious against overwhelming, overwhelming odds. He is the only one who can make you more than a conqueror. Could you picture this with me? If you, if, if you could see it, there is a warehouse. I, obviously, it's not a literal warehouse, but this is where I see there is a warehouse of a thousand victories that you have yet to access. Jesus has won every one of them for you, and He is just waiting for you to appropriate them. Here's the thing, friends. The only way you begin to know He's a provider is if you need provision. The only way you know that He is a healer is if you have bitterness, if you have brokenness, if you have places of hurt. If all you are ever doing is staying in an overwhelmed position, you will never know that He is Jehovah Nisi. He is your victory. Many of us are angry with God and we say to God, how can you be good and let this happen to me? You're really saying is, you're not God. Because if He is God, He is good. And if He is good, He is God. That is who He is. And so this thing that is happening to you that you hate, that you question, that you grumble, you complain about, and all of that, it is a manifestation of the goodness of God. Because God cannot manifest and not be good. And in His wisdom, He has allowed this thing to happen. Even though His power could have prevented it, He has allowed it to happen, but it is His wisdom that will transform what others have intended for evil into good for you. I know that in all things, my God will work together for the good. doesn't mean they're good to start with. They could be a lack, a need, a place of deficit. It could be a place of bitterness. It could be a place of poison. It could be a, a place of overwhelming odds. And yet my God will transform that if I will allow it. He doesn't have to prove Himself. This is who He is. Once he says this is his name, in other words, he's always this. He's always victorious. He's always healing. He's always providing. You're just not letting him. Because either you're telling him how to provide, or you're telling him that you really do identify with your bitterness, or you like being a victim because you don't know what it is to be a victor.
Either way, you've got to come to the end of yourself and say, this just isn't working for me. And when that happens, you have the opportunity, friends, you have the opportunity for Him to reveal the fullness of both who He is and who you are. See, the fullness of our humanity is to know God for who He is. All the things that are happening in your life right now, they're all helping you to apprehend different aspects of God's character. Don't waste your sorrows. Truth is, if you know Him and you know His attributes, you can face anything. You can face anything. But the fact of the matter is, our complaining and grumbling and and wallowing in our our self-pity and self-protection are manifestations that we do not know our God. And it's fascinating. I've known people who are doctrinally very sound, who know all of theology, and yet worry, complain, live as if He is not in control, though they theologically say He is. I want to tell you the truth. (laughs) It's more important how you actually experience life than what you say about life. You need to encounter Him. That's what Isaiah did. As he encountered the holiness of God, there were four things, there are at least four expressions or or reactions that happen. The first of these four is, is Isaiah is overwhelmed with the holiness of God. He is overwhelmed by His holiness. What Isaiah is saying to us is he's saying, God is great, but even the word great doesn't even begun, begin to suffice to describe Him. And so, He's so excellent, He's superior. He, it, one writer said, He is above aboveness. He is beyond beyondness. It's just, there are no words that can tr- describe, but one writer that struck me said, He is threateningly superlative. I want, to, I want to explain that to you because I, I think this is a very important concept. I'll explain it in a silly way. I love to sing, okay? I enjoy singing, and when I sing next to some of you, I feel like I'm a really good singer. <laughs> My wife says I have a pleasant voice. So... This Thursday, I got all dressed up in my doctoral regalia. I was on the stage at ATS's hooding ceremony for the graduates and stuff like that. I'm sitting next to my good friend, Pastor Kelvin Walker. And so Kelvin sings like the angels must sing. I mean, Kelvin has the most beautiful voice, you know, perfect pitch. When he harmonizes, my knees go weak. I mean, it just... Amazing. So I start off singing with Kelvin in the worship time, and I'm thinking, I'm going to sing my best, and maybe Kelvin will think I'm a good singer too. You know, kind of a, just being really honest with you. Sitting there going, maybe Kelvin's going to, you know, think I'm a good singer. Then I hear him, he hits every note perfectly. His timing is impeccable. He even flourishes on the right places. And, he, and I'm sitting there trying to keep up with him, and after a while, I just go, I suck. I'm like, I'm never singing again, you know, kind of. And I just get lower and lower and lower, thinking, okay, I don't want him to hear how I'm missing all those notes and all of this stuff. And, and I realize that's what a threatening superlative is. It reveals you. It reveals the flaws. 
It reveals the imperfections. Now, you know, I came back to preaching instead of singing. But, uh, <laughs> but if singing had been my life, if singing had been the basis of what I thought justified my existence and suddenly I'm in the presence of perfection, I would go, I am undone. I am undone. This is what it should sound like and this is what I sound like. And it would cause you to never want to do it again. This is what Isaiah experienced. He was in the presence of purity. He was in the presence of perfection. He realized that what holiness means is it's a cut apart. It's separate. It's infinitely beyond anything we are. It's God's otherness. You know, no other attribute is mentioned three times. He doesn't say God is love, love, love. Only the holiness of God is, is given this, this, this thrice emphasis. Holy, holy, holy. And the seraphim, they're not, they're not looking at a bulletin going, okay, it's time to say it. They look at His face. They look at His attributes. They see His essence. And they can't they can't contain themselves. And as many times as they can say it, they say it over and over and over again. And their existence is satisfying to them as they just behold the glory and the holiness of God. And they declare it. He is of such eyes, the prophet says, that he cannot behold evil. If you don't realize how threatening that is, he is not a God to be trifled with. He's a real God who's even more traumatic, more scary than any God we could create. So what happens is Isaiah, when he sees and encounters the holiness of God, he says, woe to me. Now, this is a really, really important phrase. You understand, the prophet's life centered around two messages. The first message was the blessing of the Lord. They would proclaim the blessing, the well-being of the people, because when the people kept the commandments of God, when they kept the requirements of the covenant, then the blessings and the benefits of the covenant were theirs. But the second message was always the woe. Woe to you. Even Jesus speaks this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. In other words, danger, cursing. Because when you don't keep the requirements, you don't get the benefits, you get the curses. And every covenant has legal requirements. And the legal requirements are if you fulfill you get the blessing. If you do not fulfill, you get the curse. So the prophets would come to the people and the prophets were the rebuke of God more often than they were the blessing. They were the corrective voice of God. And they came and they would say, woe to you for turning astray. But in this case, Isaiah needs no other prophet. He pronounces the woe on himself. Woe to me. You understand? He is in the presence of the very one that he is a messenger of, and he proclaims the woe over himself. He is undone. This is not unusual. When Job met God, for numerous chapters, Job's been complaining, saying, if you just give me an audience. Basically, for numerous chapters, Job goes, you've got some explaining to do, God. <laughs> and then suddenly he meets God. You know what he says? I see you now. And I abhor myself. I hate myself, is what he's saying. He no longer acts 
ask for any explanation. Now he is undone in the presence. And now, this isn't just in Job. It's not just in Isaiah. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is with his disciples on the sea and a storm comes up, a demonic storm, and Jesus rebukes the storm just like you would a demon. After he has rebuked the storm, the disciples are more afraid of Jesus than they are the storm. They realize we have a worse storm in the boat than we had outside the boat. We have philosophers that say we invented God. We invented God in a scary world to make us feel less afraid. The Isaiah passage tells us that the God who reveals himself is far scarier than the world is scary. I don't think we invented him. I think he has revealed himself for who he is. And the reality is, friends, you will not go very far with the real God until you are overwhelmed by the holiness of God. I remember as a kid, you know, growing up, I was very churchy. We were a very churchy family. We went to every time the doors were open, we were there. And so I, I played the church kid for my parents. I memorized the Bible. I, um, you know, I, I did all this theology. I learned all kinds of stuff because I wanted my parents to think I was a good boy. But in my, the rest of my life, I was, I was following my friends. I remember in fifth grade, I learned how to cuss. Man, I loved cussing. <laughs> I just loved it so much. You know? And you tried different things, that, all the stupid things kids do to try to be adults. And I did all of those things. And so I was living this, kind of, this very hidden double life. The life I thought you know, my parents wanted me to live, and at the same time, the life of exploring everything that I could of the flesh and of sin. And one night, I was, I was in the seventh grade, and I can remember today as clearly as the clearest day, that I had a dream that didn't feel like a dream, but it felt like reality. And I was falling into the pit of hell. And I heard the voice of God, and I met the holiness of God as a seventh grader. And it shook me and rattled me to my core. I woke screaming, never forgetting that he had, he had revealed himself as the one who knew exactly all of my games, who knew exactly all of my little church tricks and all my little religious tricks, and that I was undone in his presence and had turned my life upside down. You cannot go deep with God till you're overwhelmed by God. Are you hearing me? So what happens when you're overwhelmed? Well, it strips you. It strips you of all your deception. It strips you of all your games. It's a funny thing that many really, really wonderful people marry really horrible people. And often they marry players and charmers and all of this kind of stuff and think they're going to change them. And yet a charmer or a player is somebody who by nature lies. It's just it's who they are. They're liars. But their lives don't work on their family. Because a family can only hear so many promises that are unmet till they don't trust anymore. Or how many I'm sorry's count after you've said it over and over and over again and keep doing the, the same kinds of things. You see, the same is true in the eyes of God. All of your games and your charm and your lies and all your veneers mean nothing to Him. And when you come into His presence, He strips you of your capacity to deceive. 
even to deceive yourself. So Isaiah says, woe is me. I am an un, a man undone. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. And I've always asked that question, at least to myself. I said, why does he talk about his lips? He wasn't born in Jersey, you know, and, and, or drive in New York City, or, or uh, cuss like a sailor, or have all the, you know, he's not talking about speaking sexually immoral, or vulgarities, or any of this kind of stuff. You have to remember, who is this guy? Chapter 6 is the sixth chapter. So for five chapters, he has been a prophet of God. And what is the main instrument of a prophet but their lips? Their lips, they're communicators of truth. This is his stock and trade. This is what gives him worth. This is his strength. This is what he would consider his righteousness. He's a servant of the Most High God. He's a prophet of the Lord. He's a messenger of the truth of God. His worth, his value. What is he repenting of? He's repenting of his own righteousness. See, this, this is the key, friends. When you are in the presence of God, you don't just repent of what's unrighteous about you. You repent of what you have considered to be righteous about you. You repent of your strength, of anything that you thought gave you worth, anything that thought gave you value, because in the presence of the Lord, your strength is found wanting. Isaiah writes, your righteousness is but filthy rags. But it's only in the presence of God that you know that. See, what's the glue that holds you together? What's the thing that you took the broken pieces of your life and you tried to put them all together so that you became a person of value, a person of worth, a person that other people can love? Well, in the presence of God, the glue melts. Everything you put together starts falling apart. Everything you try to prop up, he blows it away. Even the Apostle Paul who is one of the greatest men that's ever lived, one of the greatest students and teachers that's ever lived. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He said he was one of the greatest rabbis ever. He said no one studied harder than him. No one took the law more seriously than him and said, as to the law, I was blameless. But he said the day came that he encountered the holiness of God and the finger of God pointed to one, one commandment. Thou shalt not covet. And suddenly Paul, who at that point was called Saul, was undone because he knew that no matter how hard he tried, he had coveted everything that everybody else had that he didn't have. And he could not escape the evidence because, friends, do you know why he killed Stephen? He didn't kill Stephen because he was a deacon in the church. He didn't kill Stephen because he was a Christian. Scripture says that he saw in Stephen something he didn't have. Word of God says Stephen was full of wisdom. He was full of the Spirit and no one could stand against him. And Paul, who was then Saul, said, that's what I always wanted. That's what I've always worked for. He has it. I don't have it. Let's kill him. And when the finger of the holiness of God was put on that place. In Paul's life, he writes in Romans 7, he says, I died. And then later he says this, I consider all these things loss for the insurpassable value of knowing Christ. What is it that you have propped up? 
For Paul, it was his moral uprightness. For Isaiah, it was his lips. George Whitfield is one of my favorite Great Awakening preachers, and he talks about how do you get free. And he has a very interesting set of steps. The first one is that you have to recognize your unrighteousness. Do you understand? You don't even have to be religious to recognize that you're unrighteous. Everybody recognizes. Because when you get caught, everybody goes, I'm sorry. I repent. I'll change. I'll never do that again. Even irreligious people say that. Because when you get caught, you know. You know you're unrighteous. Truth is, you hardly ever have to tell people that they're doing wrong because they know it. They know it. That's not really a big issue. Everybody can do that. See, what separates people who are religious and yet full of guilt and shame and people who have come into an encounter with the holiness of God is we take the second step and we begin to repent of what we have considered to be our righteousness. We begin to repent of what we have considered to be our strength, what we have considered to be good. Now, think about this with me. If you do not do that, then all you're doing is trying to get Jesus to make you a better person or a better version of yourself. He's just there as a prop. But if you have renounced your own righteousness and you have renounced anything that you have mixed in to try in some way to present yourself acceptable to God on the basis of some aspect of your performance. In many ways, when we mix in and offer to God what we consider righteousness, it's about like the kid who comes in with a mud pie and wants mom to eat it because he thinks it's blueberry. You've never seen that? Kids do that all the time. Some of you have their Picasso paintings on the refrigerator and they actually think they're worth something. And God sees right through it and says, that's mud. That's crayons. It's never going in the Louvre. Because He's the Spirit of truth. And He will not allow you to use Him as a resource to prop up your idolatry about yourself. And the last idol that goes in His presence is the idol of self-righteousness. See, I grew up in a church that was pretty good about confessing their unrighteousness, but they were horrible at confessing their righteousness. They thought, because they had in their mind correct doctrine, because they were morally upstanding, and because they weren't the other churches in the area, the other churches they considered to be inferior to themselves, the other churches they considered to be either heretical or terrible or ignorant or whatever it was, they never realized that as a church, the church I grew up in had never met the holiness of God. Because if they had really encountered the, the true holiness of God, they would have realized none of us love God as He should be loved. None of us can love God. See, when you come into the encounter and He strips away all of your abilities to, to fake your love for Him and fake your worship for Him, and you're actually seeing who He is face to face, and you're seeing these seraphim, and they're going, I'm going to spend the rest of eternity just saying, holy, 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 and I'm going to be happy, happy, happy. And you're sitting there and you're like, I am destitute. I am undone. I am woeing myself. And you realize 
when you realize that, even though for many of you this morning it's really difficult for you to hear what I'm saying, but when you realize that, it is incredibly freeing. Because no longer do you have to mix in your works. No longer do you have to fake it till you make it or play. You just go, God, I will never love you like you should be loved. And then when you look at your fellow neighbors or friends, you begin to realize, wow, they need to see God like I've had the encounter with God. But you don't look at them and say, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like him. Oh, I'm so glad I have such a better behavior pattern than she does. Because the minute you start comparing yourself to someone else and trying to figure out that you're as good as or better than they are, you are revealing that you've never met the holiness of God. Because once in His holiness, you just look around, they're just degrees of wretchedness, but we're all wretched. Now, what this does is it helps you make sense of two very valuable passages of the New Testament. The first is this one. Hebrews 10.10. It says, He has made you holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ. He has made you holy. Not you are holy. Not you are righteous. Not you're better than somebody else. Not that you compare favorably. But rather... Because of what Christ has done and because of who you are in Christ, because you have willingly separated yourself to God and you have united to Christ, then the Word of God says you have become holy. Man, what an awesome thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we in Him might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Come on. See, if you ask me, you ask me these questions this way. You say, are you a good man, Mike? I say, no. I'm a mixed bag. But if you ask me, am I holy? I'll say, with absolute certainty I am holy because it's not about me he has made me holy and none of you can dispute that even if you want to in a way that will ever change my mind and because he who is actually righteous became legally sin for me who is actually sinful so that I could become legally righteous then I say to you, none of you can make any statement of me that will ever matter to me. The only one that matters to me is I have in Him become the righteousness of God and that's all that matters. But you can only say that if you've repented of your own righteousness. Because if you're mixing it, then you're going to have to depend fully on how righteous you are. And it won't be a comparison test, friends. You can't say, at least I'm better than Mike. Or I'm better than my husband. Or I'm better than this person. At least I'm not like those pastors or those priests or whatever it is. Because the minute you say that, you're revealing you don't know God. So why does He strip us with His holiness? He does it to heal us. He does it to heal us. Now look, are you tracking with me a little bit on this this morning? Some of you are wishing you hadn't come. 
There are bruises forming. The holiness of God is revealing, stripping, overwhelming so that He can heal us. Because see, His holiness is what makes His grace real to us. Isaiah is coming apart. There's going to be a time in Revelation, it says there's going to be a time where where men and women are going to be so revealed, they will be so undone, the Scripture says they start crying out for the rocks to cover them. For the mountains to fall on them because they're so naked before God and their shame is so open. But look what God does when Isaiah opens himself up. When Isaiah says, I am undone. I am repenting of my righteousness. Immediately a seraph flies from the altar. One of the angels takes a coal from the altar and puts it on Isaiah's lips right on the spot where his repentance comes from. But what is this altar, friends? Well, see, there's an original altar. And then there's an earthly copy of that original altar. But the altar was always for the sacrifice for sins. It was always the place of atonement. So what is this heavenly altar? Well, the Scripture gives us a glimpse. You see, heaven is not subject to time. Heaven is above and beyond time. And so the Scripture says that Jesus is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. So that altar is the place where the Lamb of God has already made atonement for the sins of the people of this world. He Himself is the one that Isaiah is beholding. It's His glory. It's His majesty. His holiness that is undoing this Isaiah in this moment. And so, from that altar of the Lamb who is slain for your sin, for my sins, from that altar, a coal comes and touches his lips. Now, look, Isaiah cannot do anything. There's no time. He can't go straighten out his life. He can't go make an account for himself. All he's done is owned it, confessed it, and in that moment it says, his guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for. How? Except that the Lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed for Isaiah just like for you and me. Do you understand how psychologically amazing that is? That your guilt is gone? Now some of you don't feel guilt because you have seared consciences. But once you get closer to God, guilt becomes a reality because the light reveals how far you are broken and bankrupt and cracked and and guilt becomes a, a heaviness and Satan loves to use guilt to make you feel regret make you feel ashamed of yourself in some ways guilt is about what I've done but shame is about who I am guilt says I did wrong shame says something's wrong with me and so the two come at you in a way. And, and there's something inside of us that when we do wrong, we do want to make up for it. So we want to atone for it. We say promises to our kids or we say promises to our friends. I'll never do that again. You, I promise you. I will make this up to you. Those are words of atonement, but they don't do anything. Here is a man who has seen how wretched he is who has seen how insufficient his love is for the one that he's just met, that he's supposedly a prophet of. And in an instant, because of the exchange from altar to lips, his guilt is taken away. 
and his sins are atoned for. See, grace in that moment becomes not a concept or a doctrine. It changes him in a reality. One of my favorite preachers of all time is a Welshman by the name of Martin Lloyd-Jones. He preached a sermon one time. He said, someone comes up to you and says, I paid a bill for you. Well, in that moment, you don't know how grateful to be because you don't know which bill they paid. Now, if they just paid, you know, maybe a postage or, you know, paid your coffee bill, or which could be substantial at Starbucks, but, uh, <laughs> but they, they paid your bill or whatever, according to how much they paid is how grateful you are. For example, if they paid your mortgage, all of a sudden, just eruptions of joy would come and you would say, oh, hallelujah, you know, I love you, you know, kind of a thing. And if any of you want to do that after today, go for it. But see, you don't know the magnitude of your gratitude until you know the amount of payment that was paid. And see, when Isaiah felt that coal on his lips, he knew how grateful to be. He knew how deep the debt that was paid. You see, only when you're wounded by His holiness can you truly experience the healing of His grace. Because otherwise, you don't, need how, you don't know how much you need His healing. When you realize how broken, how desperate, how bankrupt you are, then His grace becomes a payment of joy in your life. Now, I grew up, again, in this very self-righteous church but I also grew up with this very demanding God, using the anger of God to control the behavior of people, using fear to control the behavior of people. What I realized is that they, it was a God they had created. It was the God who's going to get you, the God who was out, you know, who was basically the sheriff and was going to put you in jail. What Isaiah met was not a demanding God. He met the real and the holy God. And here's what we learn from his experience. God only shows you your sins so he can heal you. Come on, you got to get this. If God is pushing you right now, it's just, it's just to take that stuff you've hidden and suppressed and pushed down and he's trying to get it up, but he's only trying to get it up so he can heal you because he loves you that much. Because he always shows love as holy love. Are you too tired? Well, the last thing is this. The holiness of God supernaturally renovates the heart and the disposition of the heart towards God. When Isaiah has had this amazing experience of the healing grace of God in the presence of the holiness of God, though he himself has been stripped and overwhelmed by that holiness, as soon as God says, I need a prophet, and he says, I need a prophet for a mission of failure. Now, there are, you know, we said this week people have graduated. Some of you are in jobs that are tough. Some of you are making decisions about who you marry or what you're going to do next. All of these things. Let me tell you something. Your fear of failure shows you don't really know what to fear. That failure is just a little storm that Jesus can rebuke with a word. If Jesus is in the boat, he's a much bigger storm than your fear of failure. He's a much bigger storm than your fear of death or your fear of people's opinions or people thinking you're not smart or you're not worth anything. If you fear those things, you are fearing the puny. 
You're fearing the puny. And what Isaiah realized is, God, you're going to give me a job of failure. You're going to give me people who are not going to affirm me. They're not going to support me. I'm going to, I'm going to be in a job where there's going to be no good consequences. But I'm signing up, he said. He responded fearlessly. You have to understand something. If you really want to be great, if you really want to have great results from your life, it is more about who you are becoming than what you are doing. The greater the becoming, the greater the doing. We're still reading Isaiah. He is still relevant. He was broken. He was sent to a mission of failure, but he's still succeeding. Because his God is Jehovah Jireh. His God is Jehovah Rapha. His God is Jehovah Nisi. Who's your God? The opinion of other people? Your ability to succeed and have people's good approval? If you fear those things, you're fearing the wrong things. Our God says to us, I am a consuming fire. I am a holy God, but I am for you. And our Bible says, if He is for you, who can be against you? And don't say to me, oh, Isaiah had it easy. He had a peace inside of him when the circumstances around him were chaotic. The king had died. It was uncertain future. Even Isaiah was in danger. His circumstances were dire. But here's what he heard from God. If I am your king, God says, if I have really received you by my grace, then what do you have to be afraid of? I say it to you. If He's your King, if He who is the the very one to be feared has instead fully received you by His grace, His coal has touched your lips. And you've repented of not only your unrighteousness, but your righteousness. What do you have to be afraid of? What do you have to be afraid of? Will you stand with me? Can you hear me this morning? I'll take that. You don't want to be the people Isaiah preached to. God didn't want them to hear. He didn't want them to turn and be healed. You're here this morning because He wants you to turn and be healed. He wants you to hear and understand. He wants you to perceive. He wants you to let it go deep within your soul. I was realizing something this week. Your subconscious is on 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. What you are saying to yourself is always working itself back into your consciousness. Are you saying these things? Are you saying that if God is for me, who can be against me? Is that what you're saying to your subconscious? Are you saying my God's name is Jehovah Jireh? My God's name is Jehovah Rapha? My God's name is Jehovah Nisi. He has a thousand victories that I have yet to access. But today I'm beginning. Come on, don't let me be the only one that's taking this on. Let your soul stretch up today. Let your mind and your heart and your will stretch up and say, this is who my God is. I was listening to a famous preacher this week and he kept saying to his people, he said, you need to get up in the morning and say to God, help me. And I thought, well, okay, good nice but that's not really faith friends faith says i get up in the morning and my god is jehovah jireh he will provide i have expectancy that i don't have to beg him to help me he's helping me that's who he is 
I'm just saying I want him to show up. He's the one who takes the bitterness and makes it sweet. He's the one that takes overwhelming odds and makes it seem as if it's David against Goliath. Come on, that's our God. That's who Isaiah met. He said, I'm undone. I'm telling you, friends, I'm not counting on any of my righteousness. I am believing Him for the guilt of my unrighteousness. But whatever He says, I'm saying, here am I, send me. He's renovating my heart. He's renovating the disposition of my heart. Because I'm saying to the deepest place in my heart, if God be for me, who can be against me? Will you say that to yours? Nobody else can say it. I can tell you. I can persuade you. But you have to say it. Before we go today, would you make this declaration? I I would say raise it up like a flag right now if you want to. Would you say this with me? You are the Holy One. And you are my Jehovah Jireh. My provider. My Jehovah Rapha. My healer. My bitterness. You are turning into sweetness. You are Jehovah Nisi. My victory. A thousand victories. I'm accessing today. United to Christ. His victory is my victory. Here, I'm going to tell you one more thing. I know it's time to go, but the Spirit of the Lord is heavy. I'm going to tell you one more thing. Even if you're struggling to believe, as your pastor, I'm reaching out my belief over you today. Because I'm believing for you. Because there's nothing better. There's nothing better. See, I... I love my identity in Christ. I am a child of God. I love that. But I've got to tell you something. What satisfies me at the deep place is I'm a servant of the Most High God. I'm not dependent on my own righteousness. I'm not dependent. And I'm not destroyed by my unrighteousness. I will never love Him as I should, but He loves me more than I deserve. And I'm responding. And I'm trusting Him. And my heart is being renovated. And so when He calls me His servant, just like Isaiah, I go, here am I, Lord, send me. I don't care what the results are. I don't care if it's a failure. There's no other place I want to be. I just speak that over you today. I believe it's prophetic for many of you. That you've been struggling. You've been saying, oh no, I'm going to fail. Oh no, the future is uncertain. I'm saying to you today, for God, the future is never uncertain. And if He is for you, who can be against you? Go now in His name. In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week.